Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke and I get to serve as one of the ministers here at PCC. And I'm about to tell you a story, but full disclosure, I don't actually remember this story happening. I'm sure I've maybe blocked it out of my memory, but my parents are actually here today. And if you ask them afterwards, they'll swear to you this is true. There's a story told in our family of supposedly one time when I was 12 years old and my dad got home from work one afternoon and mom met him at the door and said, said, you need to go talk to your son. That's how you know it's bad, right? Like your son. And and apparently, like, here's what you need to know. I'm the oldest of six kids. And so as the oldest kid, I fully understand that it is my God-given responsibility to tell my siblings what to do, right? It just (laughs) comes with the territory. You oldest kids understand this as well. And that particular day, apparently, one of my siblings had done something wrong. I don't remember what, but they say that then I decided to be the long arm of the law and take justice into my hands and supposedly I spanked one of my siblings. <laughs> Again, I do not remember this. I plead the fifth, okay? Like I, but, but they'll tell you it's true. Now, you can imagine how that went over with my parents and the line that my dad always uses is, yeah, I'm the head of the house, but your mom is the neck and the neck turns the head any way it wants, right? You've heard that old line before. <laughs> And so when mom meets dad at the door and says, you need to go talk to your son, dad says, aye, aye, captain. And uh, so dad comes back to talk to me and he sits me down and he says, all right, Luke, listen up. Um, Our family is like a town. Now remember, six kids, so it's like an actual town, right? (laughs) And, And he said, and in this town, there is one sheriff and I am that one sheriff. And your mom is the deputy, but I am the sheriff. And you, Luke, are a citizen of this town. So Luke, when you see a fellow citizen of this town breaking the law, doing something wrong, your job is to tell the sheriff. And if the sheriff is not around, then you tell the deputy. But under no circumstances do you take justice into your own hands. There are no citizens' arrests allowed in this town. Got it? Okay, got it. You know, so we went about our day and dad went back to work for the evening and, and he came back from work late that night and it's dark and he's heading to bed. He's kind of like feeling his way through the dark in the house and he gets to his bed and his hand like brushes across his pillow and he feels something hard and plastic on his pillow. So what in the world picks it up, flips on the light and there on his pillow was a badge <laughs> with a note on it that said, dear dad, I've never known a sheriff without a badge, love, Luke. See, I didn't come out looking too bad, did I? All right, now, now my parents like surprised us last night. I didn't know they were coming in. And after first service, somebody came up to me and they said, you know what you should do? You should give that badge back to your dad in the service. Wouldn't that be such a sweet moment? But here's the deal, dad, you're in Indiana now. And so I'm gonna keep the badge if that's all right. (laughs) Only one sheriff in this town. And it's Jesus, it's not me, it's Jesus, okay? That's the moral of the story, it's Jesus, all right? Now, can I preach that for just a second? That'd be all right? Okay, here's my sermon in a sentence for the day. Hand over the badge. That's it. 
hand over the badge. Because you and I, we are citizens of the kingdom of God and there's only one sheriff in this town. He also happens to be the king. And so our job as citizens in the kingdom of God is to hand over the badge to the only one who has the authority to administer justice. Hand over the badge. That's the moral of the story today, all right? Now, like Kyle said, we've been walking through the life of David together this summer, and we've seen that God says that David, that dude right there is a man after my own heart. And I would love for that to be said about me. So we've been asking this question, like, okay, how can we be people after God's own heart? And if you've been following along with us, reading through the life of David every day, getting those text messages, I've loved that. But as we've read through David's life, we've seen David has had some really awesome moments. And he's also had some really not so awesome moments. He's actually had some failures that were quite tragic. And so like Kyle said, we've kind of taken a turn in our series and now we're walking through some of those failures. And we started out on Father's Day by talking about David's failure as a dad and his train wreck of a family. But then um, last week we rewound it even from there and we said, but actually his failure as a dad stemmed from his failure with Bathsheba, that whole incident. And yet today we're actually gonna rewind it a little further and find that the seed for all of that was planted in one particular instance earlier on in David's life. We're gonna be in 1 Samuel chapter 25 today, and we're gonna walk through the story of David and Abigail. David and Abigail, we're in 1 Samuel 25, and as you turn there in your Bibles, here's the scene for you. We are rewinding all the way back to before David was king. He's been anointed king, but he's not the king yet. The guy who is on the throne is King Saul. You might remember Saul got jealous of David. He's chasing David around, trying to kill him. David's running for his life. He's living in caves in the desert, in the wilderness. And David has 600 guys with him. They're kind of this ragtag band of guerrilla warrior dudes living in caves in the desert. Now, right before our text for the day, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we preached through that text several weeks ago. You might remember that Saul is hunting for David and on the middle of the pursuit, at one point, Saul has to go inside to this cave to answer the call of nature. Saul doesn't realize though, that's the exact cave that David is hiding in. So David sees King Saul in this vulnerable moment and he's got a golden opportunity because in one fell swoop, he can kill Saul, which means he doesn't have to run for his life anymore. He doesn't have to live in caves. He can go back home. He can see his wife and God has anointed him king so he can go ahead and step up on the throne and be done with this whole ordeal and yet in a remarkable moment David chooses to hand the badge over to God he says no I'm going to leave justice in God's hands I'm not going to repay evil with evil and he lets Saul go now here we are one chapter later and take a look at what happens first Samuel 25 beginning in verse 2 it says, a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. And we know that, right? All the money's up in Carmel, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he had 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent 10 young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they'll tell you. 
Therefore, be favorable toward my men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So here's the scene. David and his 600 guys have been out in the wilderness. And while they're out there, they had protected this group of shepherds and their sheep that had belonged to Nabal to protect them from any little raiding parties that would try to hurt them or steal any of their livestock. And this was a common social custom. And the custom was then at sheep shearing time, while everybody's festive and you're having a great time, the person would kind of give the people who had protected his flocks a tip. It wasn't law, but it was just kind of a nice way to say, hey, thanks for your help. We really appreciate it. It was a normal social custom. But take a look at Nabal's response to David, verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? You know, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? So Nabal, he's kind of giving David the hand here, like, David, who's that? And like, everybody knows who David is, right? That's the giant slayer. And yet Nabal's saying, David, who do you think you are? And we can get a taste of a little bit of what kind of guy Nabal is, even just right here. He says, my bread, my water, my meat, my sheep, my shearers. And so what's David going to do? How's he going to respond to this insult? Starting in verse 12, let's pick it up. It says, David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. So David hears Nabal's answer, and you don't strap on your sword if you're just going for a friendly chat, do you? David's out for blood here. So this is 400 guys, swords on their hips, going after one cranky landlord. Sound like overkill much? That's like going after a housefly with a 50 caliber machine gun in your kitchen, okay? Like what in the world is going on here? Remember, in the last chapter, David had a chance to kill Saul, the guy who'd been trying to kill him over and over and over and over again unjustly. And yet David nobly said, no, God, I'm gonna put the badge in your hands. I'll let you handle justice. And one chapter later, Here's David out to murder a guy in cold blood because he didn't give him a tip. What happened, David? And yet before we throw too many stones at David, let's just be honest. This is all of us, isn't it? Sure is me. You could go talk to Rebecca and she'd tell you, man, like I can be so gracious and so patient and so gentle and so loving one moment and then something can set me off and the next moment I can be so sharp and so selfish and this is all of us, isn't it? And, and David here, he's having the same struggle that all of us have, where, where we know one thing is true in our head, but when something triggers us, it's really hard to live that out in the moment. And so David knows in his head, yes, God is the only one worthy to carry the badge. I should leave justice in his hands. And yet in the moment, David's thinking, man, I don't deserve to be treated like this. I'm gonna get what's mine. I'm gonna fix this problem right now. And thankfully, Somebody cares enough about David to step in and stop him before he does something that he'll regret. Take a look, starting in verse 14. It says, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, hey, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Now, think it over, see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. 
She took 200 loaves of bread, 200 skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sayahs of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Now, like, some of y'all are like the hostess with the mostest like that. I can't even make PB&J. And she's just like, sure, five-course meal, no problem. And then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Now, let's cut David a little slack, right? He's angry. And he's hungry, he's hangry. I've got a two-year-old who acts like this. We've been there, haven't we? When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let, let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please, pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and his folly goes with him. Now, ladies, don't talk about your husbands like that, okay? This is not exactly a model, but she's right. The name Nabal in Hebrew actually does mean fool. Now, my guess is that's probably a nickname he got from like his college buddies, right? I'm having a hard time imagining a mom holding her newborn saying, yes, I shall name you fool, you know? But we've all known those kids who should have had that name, right? Yeah, uh-huh. She says, as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Abigail's smart. She knows that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. She's thinking this will all go better if they've got food in their bellies. So she gives him the food. She says, please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Like she's laying it on thick here, right? Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away. Take a look at this. She says, as from the pocket of a sling. Does that remind you of a story from David's life? Abigail's good, isn't she? Yeah, she's saying, hint, hint, hey, David, Mr. Giant Slayer Rock Slinger, remember, remember, you can trust God to take care of your enemies. Hand over the badge. She says, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. She's good, isn't she? Yeah, Abigail knows what she's doing. Now, last week we saw with the story of David and Bathsheba and in Psalm 51, a model for how to confess sin. But today in the story of David and Abigail, we see a model for how to confront sin. Because as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, sometimes you will be called to confront someone when they are in the wrong. Now, early on in ministries was several years ago, and this person does not attend here, but... I met with a guy and he was just kind of this 
like big dog, alpha male type personality, just a real intense, dominant kind of guy. To be quite candid, he was just not a very likable person. And he, he claimed to be a believer, but he was like blatantly living outside of the will of God and bragging about it, just sinning with a high hand, you know? And so after one of our conversations, I finally just felt convicted that I needed to confront him. I needed to call him out on some of this. And so, listen, I, I hate conflict. I try to avoid it at all costs. It's one of my flaws. But I felt like in that moment, I like summoned up my courage and I did the right thing. I wrote a text message. And, uh, <laughs> and let me tell you, it was a good text. Like I typed this thing out, it was long. This thing should have had like chapter headings and a table of contents, right? And I'm, I'm not making this up. I laid out in this text message, eight points, eight reasons from the Bible why the way he was living was unbiblical and how he needed to turn around and repent and get his life right with the Lord. And it was strongly worded and it was awesome. And I read it over, I was like, oh yeah, that'll get him. And then I pressed send and I sent that text message to what I thought was his number. Yeah. (laughs) And then I didn't hear back for a little while. I thought, it's okay, he's probably just praying. I'll give him some time, you know. (laughs) And then I get a text back that says, "Um, sorry, I think you have the wrong number. This is the Walmart online grocery pickup phone. <laughs> God's honest truth, I swear to you. <laughs> so, so if you see a radical corporate turnaround in Walmart in the coming weeks, I'm happy to take credit for it, all right? <laughs> like clearly there's a right way to confront somebody and there's a wrong way. And so Abigail does not send David a text. She goes face to face and she handles this thing. And I think we see here, even in this interaction, a model for how to confront somebody in their sin. And the first thing we see is Abigail just slows it down. You gotta slow it down. She's smart and she can tell David's mad. He's reacting. He's gonna fix this problem and he's gonna fix it now. Strap on your swords. And when I look back on my life, almost all of my worst moments come when I'm in a hurry. Anybody else? And so Abigail, she just senses, okay, we gotta diffuse this thing. Let's slow it down. Let's stop. Let's take a break. Let's eat a little bit. Let's talk a little bit. Think about this, David. She slows it down. Here's the second thing Abigail teaches us. You gotta lead with love. Abigail doesn't come out trying to defend herself or defend even her husband. She comes out and it's very clear she's trying to help David, not just protect herself. Our high school minister, Derek Skinner, he says it like this. He says, if you approach people in strength, it leads to competition. But if you approach people in weakness, it leads to connection. It's pretty good, isn't it? And Abigail comes to him in weakness and she gets down on her knees in humility. She leads with love and six times she calls herself your maidservant and eight times she calls David my Lord. She leads with love. Proverbs 15.1, my parents made me memorize this verse when I was a kid. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When you do confront somebody, you gotta lead with love and let them know you're not trying to attack them, you're trying to attack the problem with them. Slow down, lead with love. Here's the third thing, you gotta land with truth. You need people in your life who are going to tell you the truth because all of us are like David, aren't we? We are experts at seeing the sin in other people and we're also experts at excusing the sin in ourselves. I can stand up here and talk about your sin all day, but 
you know what? I need people in my life who are gonna slow it down, lead with love and land with truth to help me see what's wrong with me. David's son Solomon would say this in Proverbs 27. He says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. You need some friends in your life who know God and who know you deeply enough that in your messiness, they're gonna be able to speak hard truth for you, that they're gonna be able to wound you in love so that you can grow. Um, some of you will recognize the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He led this radical disciple-making movement in Nazi Germany, and he was eventually executed in a concentration camp by the Third Reich. But he said this. He said, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. And listen, there are some of you in here today that I'm pretty sure that this morning, God is going to call you to have a difficult conversation with somebody in your life. That there's somebody in your life that you have a trust relationship with who's heading down the path of sin and God wants you to be the one who's gonna saddle up your donkey and say, whoa, 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 let's think about this for a minute. I've heard it said that the opposite of love is not anger, the opposite of love is apathy. And sometimes the most loving thing that you can do for somebody is to confront them. And so my prayer for you this morning has been that if God is convicting you of that, that he would not let you, that his Holy Spirit would not let you wriggle out from under that holy burden until you saddle up your donkey with the courage and the shrewdness of Abigail and you step in and you lead with love and you land with truth and you say, yeah, listen, hey, someday you're gonna have to tell your grandkids this story and when you do, how do you wanna have to explain this chapter to them? Lead with love, land with truth. So this is a pretty dramatic story, right? And we see these three main characters, David, Nabal, Abigail. Let me ask you a question. Who are you in this story? Who are you in this story? Uh, some of you are Abigail. And I love getting to hear your stories because I know that we have a lot of Abigails in this church. You know, there's that narrative that sometimes gets thrown around that like when the pressure's on and the rubber meets the road, women can't really be trusted because they're way too emotional and they don't think rationally. But I love that this story flips that narrative on its head, doesn't it? Who is emotional and irrational in this story? It's David and Nabal, isn't it? And Abigail's the one, she's a smooth operator. Like she's cool under pressure that when the moment's hot, she meets it and she steps up and she does God's work even when her husband is dumb. And listen, let's call a spade a spade. Some of you are married to a foolish husband. I want you to know that doesn't have to stop you from doing God's work. Even if you're hitched to a fool, God can still use you as his tool. There's your, there's your line, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't wanna just make light of that though because I know that underneath that, there, there's, a, there's a real deep pain in some relationships in here. So my encouragement to you is just don't give up. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, he talks about how a mom who is following Jesus, even in a family that's not, can still help her children become holy to the Lord. And if that's, if that's you, if you are the spiritual trendsetter in your home and if God has entrusted you with that holy burden and your husband does not share your devotion, that's a hard call, but it's one that you can do with his help. And if, if that is you today, I'm gonna to give you some homework. I want you to go home and I want you to read 1 Peter chapter three, verses one through seven. 
That's a text written specifically to that scenario. First Peter chapter three, verses one through seven. That is God's word specifically to you today. If you are Abigail, but maybe in this text, maybe you're not Abigail. Maybe in this text, you're Nabal. <laughs> and, and maybe the Holy Spirit has been pricking you. And, and if that's you this morning, um, I wanna challenge you and step on your toes here for just a minute. Men, please do not make your wife go behind your back to do what's right. Don't put your wife in the position where he, she has to sneak around to try to find a way to follow Jesus and be generous and give and pray and serve and go to church and teach your kids and teach your grandkids. Don't let the story be told in your family someday of how your wife went to spiritual battle on behalf of your family while you stayed home and did your own thing. God has something higher for you today if you're Nabal. But my guess is for a lot of us in the room, maybe you're not Abigail, maybe you're not Nabal. My guess is for a lot of us, maybe you're David. And if that's you this morning, let me just ask two diagnostic questions real quick. Here's the first one. What are you trying to do that only God can do? What are you trying to do that only God can do? I know it's a tough question to ask, but um, maybe you're trying to do the right thing, but in the wrong way. Or maybe you're trying to muscle out the work of the spirit by the power of the flesh. And, and I know that's a tough question to answer, but the way I see it play out most often in people's lives is when you try to control a situation so that you can change someone. Because here's the deal. You and I can't change anybody, can we? I can't even change my own heart, much less somebody else's heart. God's the only one who can change people. So where are you trying to do what only God can do. And listen, I know that when it's somebody that you love, it's really hard to hand the badge over to God, isn't it? Because for so many of you, it's somebody in your life that you care about deeply and you love them intimately. And it's somebody who's far from God and their heart is hard and you would do anything, wouldn't you, to help them change because you want something better for them. And you know, one of the most influential thinkers and theologians and writers in church history was St. Augustine. And St. Augustine just lived this incredible life. He like invented a whole genre of literature. He just had this brilliant mind and a heart that was on fire for God. But St. Augustine's life actually started off pretty rocky. For the first part of his life, he was not a follower of Jesus, but Augustine's mom was this fiercely godly woman of faith. And her name was Monica. And Monica knew that she couldn't change her son, so she did her best to just hand the badge over to God. And she prayed and she prayed and she prayed for her son, Augustine. And the irony is that if you read Augustine's story, pretty much everything that Monica prayed for Augustine did not come true. Like she prayed that Augustine would be holy and that he would serve the Lord. And yet Augustine went off and he lived this wild life of passion and he had a mistress and he had a child out of wedlock. He was definitely not Saint Augustine back then, if you know what I mean. And Monica prayed that her son would be humble. And then she watched him just get consumed by pride and try to climb the ladder through the social ranks as a public speaker. And Monica prayed that he would know and love and serve the Lord. And then she watched as Augustine went off and joined this 
cult. And, and Monica, some of you know this pain, her heart as a mom was just torn up seeing all these choices that Augustine was making. And so she did what a lot of moms do, that over and over and over again, Monica, she would go to their pastor. His name was Ambrose, and he was one of the early church fathers. He's an awesome dude. And, and Monica, she would just go to Ambrose and she, she would cry for Augustine and she would weep for Augustine. And all she ever wanted to talk about was Augustine. And all she ever wanted to pray for was Augustine. And she would ask questions about Augustine. She'd pour out her heart in prayer for Augustine. I mean, all she ever wanted to talk about was her son, little Augustine, just wailing about him. And eventually, like full confession, pastors are people too, right? And so Augustine just kind of got, or excuse me, Ambrose, he just kind of got fed up with all this until eventually one day he said to Monica, kind of out of annoyance, he said, it is not possible that a child of such tears could possibly be lost. And he sent her away. Now it may seem a little harsh, (laughs) But I actually kind of love that um, because God did change Augustine's heart. And for the rest of his life, Augustine called himself a child of tears because he knew that his mama had prayed him into the kingdom. Only God can do that. And I'm here today as a child of tears. I had my wandering season where I was proud and rebellious and deceitful and arrogant and talented and I was going places and I didn't need God or my parents or anybody else to get there. And when I was, <laughs> when I was 16 years old, I actually wrote a declaration of independence from my parents. And I swear, it's the greatest thing I've ever written. If you read this thing, I mean, it's brilliant writing. I'm a nerd. I worked my tail off on this thing. I modeled it off of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's, uh, you know, message at the Seneca Falls Convention where she was campaigning for women's suffrage and Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail and Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. And I wrote this thing out and I read it to my parents and it was brilliant and it was awesome. And my heart was so hard. I was far from the Lord. But my parents didn't quit praying and my grandparents didn't quit praying and my great-grandparents didn't quit praying and my teachers didn't quit praying. And I'm here today as a child of tears. And my wife, Rebecca, is a child of tears. And my father-in-law tells the story of how in her prodigal season, listen, my father-in-law is a big, strong man. But he tells the story of one night he just laid his head on his wife's lap and he just wept and he sobbed and he cried out over and over again, she's gone, she's gone, she's too far gone. How will we ever get Rebecca back? But they kept praying. And my wife is a child of tears. And if you know her, you know she's the most tenderhearted person I've ever met. And our three little boys are gonna be children of tears because even if I was the perfect dad, which I'm not, they would still come out of my house and need the Holy Spirit to get a hold of their hearts. And some of you, you have children of tears and you have grandchildren of tears and you have a spouse of tears, you have parents of tears, you have friends of tears. And if that's you, if you're struggling, if you're laboring before the Lord on somebody's behalf, don't give up. Keep handing him the badge and don't try to do what only he can do because only he can change their hearts. But I want you to rest in the knowledge that he's got it, that he's the king. Let me ask you a second question here. Um, What do you do when someone sins against you? What do you do when somebody sins against you? Um, Do you grab the badge? That's our natural human tendency, isn't it? To take justice into our own hands, to handle it. We don't deserve to be treated like that. Or can you honestly say, God, I'm just gonna trust you with this. I don't, I don't need to handle it. You got this. It's hard to do. There's a theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf who says it like this. He says, to triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. 
The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory, when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory had not infused it with new life. This is why Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. That's really hard to do, isn't it? I've heard it said before that you never have a better opportunity to look like Jesus than when somebody sins against you. And man, it's hard. But your call is to love in the same way that Jesus has loved you and to forgive in the same way that Jesus has forgiven you. And that's hard when you get mistreated. It was hard for David, but to David's great credit, he responds well when he was confronted. And part of what made David a man after God's own heart wasn't that he was perfect. It was that when he screwed up and realized that he screwed up, he always repented well and turned back toward God. Take a look at what happens here in verse 32. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. And so Abigail does go home and she tells Nabal what happened and Nabal realizes how close he was to dying. And you can go read it this afternoon. Nabal just drops dead right there. And when David hears that Nabal is dead, he remembered Abigail and he thought, hey, uh, she's smart, she's godly. She's cute, fellas, that's what you should look for in a wife. And so he proposes to Abigail. And it says, verse 42, Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. Ta-da, fairy tale ending. They all live happily ever after, right? Except not really, actually. Because think about it, up till David's, up till this point in David's life, with everything we've seen so far, David has been the good guy, hasn't he? Um, up until this point in the narrative, we have not actually seen David do anything wrong. And so we see David and we think, okay, all right, like may, maybe this is the promised king that we need. And yet we come to 1 Samuel 25 and this story gives us a little glimpse that, well, maybe David isn't perfect. And... Maybe he's not going to be the king we've been waiting for after all. Because, yeah, on the surface, it seems really happy that Prince Charming David and perfect Princess Abigail meet and fall in love. And they go right off into the sunset and live happily ever after. But actually, don't forget, if you've been reading through David's life, you'll remember David was already married. Verse 43 said, David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both were his wives. We talked about last week how God had explicitly said in his law in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that the kings are not to take multiple wives. And so this instance right here is the start of a slippery slope that plants the seed in David's heart of womanizing and of coveting another man's wife that plants the seed that takes root and becomes the whole Bathsheba thing that grows and eventually tears David's family apart at the seams. This is not a happy story. This is a sad story. So let me ask you again, who are we in this story? Because I don't think we're Abigail. You and I, we're David. And time and time again, haven't we? We have said, you know what, God, I'm gonna handle this one. I'm gonna take the badge. I think I know what's best. I'm, I'm gonna take this one into my own hands and do it my way. 
And when we have done that, we have sown and we have reaped seeds of sin and death and destruction and brokenness and shame and regret and rebellion. You and I, we're not Abigail. You and I, we're Nabal. I mean, think about it. God, God has been so kind to us. He has been so generous to us. He has created us. He has loved us. He's provided for us. He's protected us. He's sustained us. He sent his son to save us. And we've had the audacity to strut around as if he doesn't exist and to just go throughout our lives ungrateful for his goodness as if every good thing that had happened to us was the product of our own hard work and good ideas. You and I, we're not Abigail. We're Nabal. So who's Abigail? Jesus is our Abigail, right? I mean, think about it. Jesus is the one who comes riding in on a donkey and who falls on his knees between us and the wrath that we deserved. Jesus is our Abigail. Jesus is the one who was innocent and yet said, take the guilt on me. Don't take it out on them. Put the guilt on me instead. I'll take it on myself. Jesus is our Abigail. Jesus is the mediator between us and the one that we were not wise enough or worthy enough to approach on our own. Jesus is our Abigail, the only one who was tempted in every single way that we are and yet was without sin. Jesus is our Abigail, the only one who's worthy to hold the badge, the only one who's able to truly administer justice. And if he did, he is the one who would rightly pour out his wrath upon us for our rebellion against him and yet he is the one who said, no, I will take the wrath on myself and I will give them my mercy and my grace and my love in its place. Jesus is our Abigail, the one who died for us, though he was innocent while we were still sinners in rebellion against him. And he died and he rose and he reigns and one day he will return and he and only he is the one true king that we need. And so if you got it when you walked in, like Kyle said, would you take out your communion here? We ask the question, what do you do when somebody sins against you? And every week we come to this moment where we remember what Jesus did when we sinned against him. Romans chapter five, Paul says, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He said, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that God has proven his love for you. He says, because while we were still sinners, while you and I were still David hot on the trail with the badge in our hands, while we were still Nabal strutting around as if he doesn't exist, at that very moment, he says, Christ died for us. It's good news, church. And so here in a moment, I'm gonna give you some space to receive this little piece of bread on your own. Jesus said, this is my body. This is the moment where we remember his body nailed to the tree. And he said of the cup, he said, this is my blood the blood that poured from his side that washes us clean in the sight of God. And we receive this gladly together. And so I'm gonna give you a moment to receive the bread on your own and then I'm gonna pray and we'll receive the cup together. But as we do, as you just have that few moments with the Lord together, um, could we make it an exchange? Would that be all right? That as you receive this bread, as you receive God's grace again. Say, yeah, Jesus, I know I deserve your wrath, but because of your death, I'm gonna receive your mercy again today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But as you receive that in your mind, 
would you pull out the badge and would you just hand it back to him in response and say, hey, this doesn't belong to me. This belongs to you. You're the only one who can hold this. And I don't know what you're dealing with today, but he does. So just trust him with it. I'll give you a moment to receive the bread on your own and then I'll pray and we'll take the cup together. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.